Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 41 in the book of Hebrews titled, Bearing the Reproach of Christ, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 16. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're in the closing stretches of the book of Hebrews in the final comments of chapter 13. Well, I shouldn't say final because next week's episode is final remarks. Uh, But we are getting some of those closing thoughts. And here the author mentions the leaders of the church and then also sacrifices of praise. Can you give us an overview of what we're going to see here in these verses and then we'll talk about them? Yeah, we're in that final section uh, that we've been operating with a three-part outline of the entire book of of Hebrews, where a superior mediator, Jesus Christ, brings a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life, what we would call simply the life of faith. But there are going to be elements of that life of faith that we're going to deal with here in this very practical section. Every, almost every epistle in the New Testament ends with a, se- a section of Christian ethics, of, of practical Christian living, and this one is no different. And so these are some pr- very powerful ethics. But they do flow from the new covenant concepts that these Jewish professors of faith in Christ need to embrace. That we're in a whole new era now, and that we're going to be defining sacrifices differently. We're going to uh, find sacrifices of praise and sharing with the poor and needy. And these kinds of things are sacrifices acceptable God, to God through Jesus Christ, not animal sacrifice. Those days are over. And the leaders that we're going to follow now are not Levitical priests. They're not Aaronic priests that are going to be teaching Old Covenant regulations. But we've got New Testament teachers and leaders who are living out a godly New Covenant life. And we should follow those leaders and imitate their example in this kind of life of faith. But through it all, amazingly, Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there's been no change in Christ, but just that the covenants have changed. We've moved from old covenant life to a new covenant life. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read verses 7 through 16. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So I first want to ask you about verse 7. The author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. On the topic of leadership in the Christian church, He says, those who spoke to the Word of God, can you define what a proper Christian leader is to look like? Yeah, there's going to be a combination of right doctrine with right 
living. So we'll go to the second, write ethics, as the author here says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate, he says, their faith. So obviously I think the author means imitate the fruit of their faith or the lifestyle that comes from faith, uh, but understand there's an underlying faith in Christ um, that comes from it. So that goes to that third part of the outline of the book of Hebrews, a superior mediator brings a superior covenant. Uh, resulting in a superior life, and that life is the life of faith, faith in Christ. And so leaders are those who are men of faith, who preach the gospel clearly. Back in those days, uh, they may even been apostles and have been equipped with supernatural power to do signs and wonders, as the author mentions in chapter 2. Nowadays, we wouldn't see that. But you see a life of holiness. Our God is a consuming fire. We just saw that at the end of chapter 12. So these are those that understand that God is holy. They live a holy life. Jesus said concerning false teachers, by their fruit you will recognize them. And so you look at the fruit of someone's life and you listen to the fruit of their lips. What are they saying? Uh, You're like the Bereans taking their teachings and lining it up with the written word of God and you're looking at their lives. Do you see patterns of excess in either direction? You know, either toward extreme asceticism because of legalism or toward um, extreme license, uh, resulting in very, very much worldliness. So you look at that, that fruit, and if the fruit lines up with the, the gospel of grace and they're teaching accurately, then those are faithful leaders. I know you've touched on this a little bit, but what does it mean to consider the outcome of their way of life? Do you mean just the fruit in their life or the, the long-term results of their faith in their families? What does that mean? Well, maybe it's, it's all of that and even more. One would be, where is it all heading? You know, where are we going with all this? What is the ultimate end of this person's life? Just like Jonathan Edwards when he wrote The End for Which God Created the World. And his answer was the glory of God, his own glory. And so the end of all godly teachers must be the same, the glory of God. So the final outcome, the direction of everything they do, whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, in their marriage, their parenting, their teaching, their, their lifestyle, it all tends toward the glory of God. They're very God-centered, God-saturated. So you could look at this verse in terms of consider the outcome of their way of life is where is it all heading? Or you could say maybe it's just is it, is it heading to heaven? You know, is it, are they, are they, uh, have they entered through the narrow gate and they're traveling along that narrow road that leads to life? So where are they heading? Where are we going? You know, you you don't want to change seats on a train that's going the wrong direction, you know, and move back closer to the the city you're trying to go to when the entire train's going the wrong direction. So the idea here is where are we heading with all this? This this leader, this this uh, religious leader, is he going the right direction or is he is he serving Satan? But then along with that is is their sub purposes. You know, what why do they do everything they do? The way that they conduct themselves in marriage and parenting, the way they handle their money, their daily life, little decisions even. What is the outcome of all of that? We could argue from this verse and also others that the ministry of the Word of God is a crucial element of a godly Christian leader because he says, remember your leaders comma, those who spoke to the Word of God, and mm-hmm. I would argue that's in opposition to leaders. Yeah. So really, what defines a Christian leader is someone who faithfully teaches the Word of God. Fundamentally, more than anything, uh, let's be honest, uh, all of us can see in God's Word, if we've got the indwelling Holy Spirit, and especially if you have exegetical gifts and training, you can see more in the Scriptures than you're living. Uh, we all come short of the perfect standard of the Word of God. But are they teaching it accurately? 
And do you feel that they are men under authority too? They're under it too. And they're saying, look, I want to be perfect as Christ is perfect. I really do. I want to pray without ceasing. I never do, but I want to. I want to put every sin in my life to death. I want to put every temptation. This is my goal. I don't want to have any, give the devil a foothold at all in my life, but I know I'm imperfect. And so they also become models of, of humility and honesty and confessing sin and being restored and renewed and refreshed day by day. So, yeah, I think ultimately the fundamental calling is they must speak the word of God accurately. In verse 8, the author says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in verse 9, he talks about not being led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Verse 8 seems a little random in its placement. Why does he put it here uh, in between this, you know, considering the leaders who spoke the word of God and being weary of false teaching? Why does he talk about the unchangeable nature of Jesus Christ here? Well, I think the central message really of all of Scripture is Christ. Christ as he points to, to God. Uh, Christ the Savior, the mediator who brings us to God, reconciles us to God. So um, we could easily say the same is true of the book of Hebrews. Christ has been the central issue here. He is the mediator, the superior mediator. So the author uh, never wants to allow these Jewish professors of faith in Christ to forget who we're dealing with, that Jesus Christ is the mediator, but he's also, Jesus is God. I mean, this is a statement of immutability. Think about it. He never changes. He never has, and he never will. Only God can make that statement. We are malleable creatures. We are influenced by things that happen to us. We learn from experience. We are impacted by decisions we make, good or ill. Jesus never is. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So honestly, I have to say I don't know the answer to your question. I don't know the train of thought here. But I know in general, in these 13 chapters, the author wants the readers to be thinking continually about Christ. Now, let's just deal with the statement. Jesus never changes. He never learns anything, ultimately. He never grows. He never improves. He never uh, becomes more morally pure or more powerful, especially, I would say, now that he's no longer in his earthly ministry. Uh, there were some limitations on him while he was in his earthly ministry, but now that he's ascended and sits at the right hand of God, he's the same, and he's always going to be the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what that means is that we will be setting him before us forever uh, in heaven, looking at his glory and learning more and more of his glory. In the context here, we need to realize he will be faithful to his promises to us, he, uh, he made his promises yesterday. He's going to keep them today and tomorrow and forever. And so we can trust him. He's reliable. He says here in verse 9, to not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So what kind of false teaching do you think had kind of started to make its way into this group? And what is he guarding against? Well, again, I think we have to look at this in reference to the Old Covenant sacri sacrificial system and how it's interesting. Once those things are obsolete, even those very familiar old teachings that are now obsolete could be called strange teachings now. It's strange to go backward. So we could, we could believe that the idea of kosher foods and uh, foods that are set apart, animal sacrifices that we then would partake and eat from the altar in the Old Covenant system, the Jewish believers, he, the author, now would say, now that I've told you very clearly that those things are obsolete and will soon pass away, 
that if you go backward in your mind and think of them in the way you used to, that is effectively a strange teaching, a diverse teaching. It's going to lead you astray. We have a different kind of altar now. We have a different kind of temple. It's a spiritual temple, a different kind of sacrifice or pattern of sacrifice. They're not animal. They're not, it's not physical animal blood, but it's different kinds of sacrifices. We have a whole different table that we're eating from now, and it's spiritual, essentially spiritual. Like Jesus said to the Samaritan woman uh, at the well uh, when she said, you know, our fathers worship on this mountain and you Jews worship on Mount Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We eat from that spiritual table. We eat spiritual food now. That's what he's saying. So you mentioned he contrasts the new altar with the old altar. Can you explain how he makes this point in verses 11 through 13, which I believe is the last compare and contrast with the old covenant in this letter? Right. So um, we are are moving toward... um, you know, a spiritual dimension, a spiritual city, um, and these things have become spiritualized. Now, let's not misunderstand. What we do with our physical bodies matters. I mean, clearly the author thinks how we live our physical lives matter. But the the sacrifices we're offering are spiritual. And so the, the time has come, I think he's saying to these Jewish professors of faith in Christ, the time has come for them to to turn their backs on criticizing unbelieving Jewish family members and neighbors and and community leaders, turn their backs on them. If they will not believe in Christ, the immutable God, if they will not worship him and see in him the the fulfillment of the Son of Man vision in Daniel 7, they, they don't understand who Jesus is. We have to move on from them. And, and he, he likened it to going outside the, yes, the city, you know, vigorous. being, I guess, ostracized outside the city. Be willing to be shamed, be willing to be rejected, be willing to be, in their case, perhaps poverty stricken, to not be able to sell their wares or ply their trade because none of their Jewish neighbors and relatives and, and friends would, would buy anything from them because they've been, they've been kicked out of the synagogue, as happened to the man born blind in John 9. He was evicted with anger from the synagogue by the Jewish leaders because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so look at Jesus, he's saying. Look what happened to him. He was, he was kicked out of Israel, basically. He was sacrificed outside the gate, like, like the refuse that was carried, like the, the, the uh, carcass of the animals were carried outside uh, so that they would not pollute the, the camp. And so all the refuse went out there. And so Jesus was treated like that. He was, he was uh, crucified outside the gate and, and looked on. He was, you know, just Isaiah 53, despised and rejected. He was hated. And so clearly the author has that in mind because he's inviting us, even commanding us, to stand with Christ under the cross and bear the reproach that he bore, to be willing to be derided and insulted and persecuted. It's been the backdrop of this whole epistle. Uh, you know, remember those early days when you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property and you stood with others who were being incarcerated. Remember all that. You're being persecuted. That's fine. That's what happened to Jesus. Be willing to go outside the city gate and bear the reproach he bore. Now, that's their context. What's ours? We're not, you know, um, old covenant Jews who um, have come into, into faith in Christ and are being tempted to go back to the old covenant religion. That's not us. But I'll tell you this. We are tempted every bit as much as they are to be people pleasers and to please our, our unsaved relatives and unsaved neighbors and unsaved co-workers 
and be ashamed of Christ. And this, this verse is very convicting for me personally. Be willing to bear the reproach of standing under the cross of Christ. Be willing to, to be counted as a Christian and to be willing to suffer whatever persecution we would meet here in our context, which is not much, but it's not nothing. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. I mean, that's going to happen. So be willing to have that happen. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Jesus said in in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory with his angels. Wow, that's striking. It's strong. So don't say, God, just don't let me be ashamed. Like Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let me be willing to stand under the cross and bear the reproach of Jesus. Yeah, and that standing for Jesus and bearing his, his reproach, that is a, a sacrifice. That's the New Testament. It's one of the New Testament equivalents of bringing your bull to the altar, right? Is mm-hmm. that, That's what he's saying, right? Sure. It is a sacrifice. It's, a, it's, it's um, beautiful and delightful in the sight of God, just like when Noah offered animal sacrifices after the flood, and the aroma was said to be pleasing to God, a pleasing aroma. And so also our lives are a pleasing aroma when we are willing to become otherworldly and by faith in Christ be willing to bear the reproach. And for us, it, I think it means being, being bold in evangelism, uh, to be able to share the gospel. I think it means standing up uh, for key issues uh, in our day, issues of abortion, of you know, sanctity of human life, standing up uh, clearly on how the Bible defines marriage on issues of homosexuality, things like that, to tell the truth, to be willing to tell a sinner the truth that they need to repent of their sins so that they will not be lost, but through faith in Christ they can be cleansed. You're going to bear reproach. Everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul said in in Timothy. So we have to be willing to bear that reproach. And he gives a, a reason. He says, for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So one more time, he's getting him to look ahead to the heavenly city. Amen. Uh, it's such a beautiful image, and we've already seen it in Hebrews 11, you know, uh, where the, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, you know, the, the heroes of old uh, knew that they were aliens and strangers, and they, and they were looking for a city that is to come. And so either way, we're going to end up outside this present city. <laughs> it's going to be destroyed. We're going to be on the outside. So this is not our home. Heaven, heaven is our home. This place is not our home. So we have to, have to see all this by faith. Because I'll tell you what, the physical world looks pretty real. It looks pretty permanent even. And, and all the people here, this is what's going on. And they have the power and the money and the, and the privileges. And they have all these good things to give you. And if you don't, if you don't dance to their tune, they're going to get angry at you. And you're going to end up having a much more difficult physical life, which you will. Um, but you have to see all of it by faith. This world is temporary, and you just have to believe that by faith. Yeah, that was the main topic of last time, the things that are shaken versus the things that remain. He says, Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So why is even verbal praise so important also in the Christian life? Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful question. And um, again and again, the Psalms and many places throughout the Scripture testify to how much God is delighted with the fruit of lips that praise or confess His name. He wants us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He wants to, us to speak words of thankfulness. He wants us to put into words 
the greatness of our God. And if we are lost for words, he's given us 50, 150 psalms, 150 psalms to, to learn how to praise him and, and many other places besides. So it's called a sacrifice because you have to work at it. You know, if we get lazy, we're going to say the same things over and over. So sometimes you have to just crack open the Bible, open up the Psalms, you know, this morning uh, at our staff devotion or this afternoon at staff devotion, we're working through Psalm 146. And it's talking about, about um, you know, the psalmist saying, I'll give thanks to God forever and ever. And how it seems like the focus there was him praising God for his mighty deeds and his actions in the past. And, you know, just, just looking at that, it was just so sweet. But it's a sacrifice to work at it and say, Lord, make, my, make your praise glorious. And the Holy Spirit's job within us is to kind of arrange praise for, for God. You know? So the indwelling uh, Holy Spirit uh, enables us to think of biblical themes and to put into words a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. So it's a beautiful thing. Now, one thing I want to say negatively is we can see then what a poisonous thing complaining is. Because it's exactly the opposite. Instead of thanking God and praising Him and giving Him honor, we're moaning and groaning and complaining about some earthly circumstance that means nothing. You know, the traffic, the weather, uh, some physical malady, even frankly significant things like serious illness for ourselves or others. Still, we should be confessing and, and offering a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that bear His name. I was thinking about sacrifice this morning because I was in First Chronicles where David goes to the threshing floor and, and you know the angel was pouring out wrath on judgment for David's census and then he stays his hand God tells the angel of the Lord to stop and he uh, goes I think it's the name's Onan to mm -hmm. buy the threshing floor and the guy offers it to him for free and he says I will not offer to the Lord something that costs me nothing yeah so is that safe yeah. to say that that's still in effect for our praise, that we shouldn't offer to the Lord sure. something that costs us nothing? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the idea of a sacrifice is something costly, something precious to you. But now we're talking about mental energy, heart energy. Um, Ole Hallisby wrote a book um, on prayer, simply called Prayer. And there was a chapter in it that really struck me called Prayer as Work. And, you know, he just talked about how a really rich, fruitful prayer life is work. Well, a subset of that is, is worship, praise. You have to work at it. And so to get lazy in our praises is not honoring to God. So that we would learn to really make his praise glorious. And it really just has to do with us. I mean, God's he already knows himself. He knows he's glorious and, and majestic. The issue is do we. And so for us to stimulate our hearts and minds by biblical meditations and by working things over until we start to get kindled and our hearts are warmed toward God, that's a sacrifice. It takes time. He adds, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So again, sacrifice again, yeah. but this time it's not towards God, but towards others. Sure. Well, this is just the fulfillment of all of that um, second great commandment um, lifestyle that the old covenant gave us. It was to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, you know, there's always going to be poor and needy among us. There's always going to be people we can, we can help. And so the idea of um, sacrificing our time, our energy, or our money, or and our money, to benefit others, to give of yourself, to spend yourself on behalf of the needy, that's a sacrifice. And that it's very difficult. Now, let me... Let me say this one thing that, that hits me here as we ha have been following sacrificial language now in this section that we've looked at here. 
it's really remarkable how much the sacrificial system has to teach us who are New Covenant Christians. It has so many potent lessons. So you know that I, I and we talked about this in an earlier podcast, how we use the sacrificial system to, to bring us to the cross, to help us understand the cross. All sin deserves a death penalty. Death penalty can be paid by a substitute, but the substitute cannot be an animal. All of that leads right to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here's the thing. The sacrificial system has much to teach us once we've come to the cross. Now that we've received the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, how then shall we live? Well, it seems like the answer is a life of sacrifice. We should present our bodies as living sacrifices. We should use our money as a sacrifice. Uh, Paul talked about that in Philippians 4, where the Philippians you know, gave money, and he, and he said it's a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, praising, uh, pleasing to God. So their money was a sacrifice. Uh, and here we've got sharing with, with the poor and needy as a sacrifice. We've got the sacrifice of praise. It's a whole life of offering up sacrifices to God. And just like you said, the issue is, does it cost you something? Did it, did it pinch at you and, and push you and cause you to, to dig deep and give? And if so, then it's something you can offer to God. Yeah, I do find it interesting as you're talking about that, that in the very letter where he's saying, you know, over and over and over again that the old covenant is, is gone, it's passed away, and the new covenant is here, he finishes the letter with sacrifice and sacrifice. Yeah. But as you said, it's a new kind of sacrifice. It is, but it's a rich life to live that kind of life. And then I, I can't help but, you know, that we're talking so much about sacrifice, um, to think about David Livingston's famous statement about that where people talked to him. He was an explorer and a, a missionary um, who lived his life for the glory of God and, and went into the deepest, darkest heart of Africa and just opened it up to Westerners, uh, to Europeans, English people and others, and just was a trailblazer for missions. And people were talking about all the sacrifices he made in serving Christ. And he just stopped them. He said, I never made a sacrifice. When I consider what Christ did for me, and then I consider all the rich blessings that have come to me for the life that I've lived, it would be wrong for me to think of this as a sacrifice. So I've thought about that phrase. It's really interesting, this, the, just the simple statement, I never made a sacrifice. And, and how it, it brought me into thinking about how, how we relate to the topic of sacrifice. And how there really, you could see almost three phases. First would be when you're lost, you're not a Christian, or you're very immature and selfish. Okay? The statement would be literally true, I never made a sacrifice. I just never did anything that was difficult for me to do for Christ. It just never happened. I never made a sacrifice. Then phase two would be, actually, I've made many sacrifices. There have been numbers of things that I've done that have, have pinched at me. They've cost me. I've given some things up. I've changed certain patterns in my life. I'm living a much more disciplined life now. I don't just do whatever I want. I'm, I'm serving my family, my wife, my kids, my church, and it's a busy life. And there are times it makes, makes me tired, and I, I feel that it's... It is not true that I have not made a sacrifice. I've made sacrifices. But even that's not full maturity. Then you come over into David Livingston's mentality. He's like, I can't even compare what I've done to what Jesus did for me. And the rewards I'll get for serving him, I don't even want to think about my sacrifices. I never made a sacrifice. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. Do you have any final comments on these verses before we close? Well, it's been a rich study, and I think for me it would be, oh, God, make my life a, a fragrant offering to you. That's my desire as a result of our study today. Well, that was episode 41 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 42, the final episode in the book of Hebrews, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 through 25. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.